0: Amen. Well, I have to say, Colette is probably my favorite scripture reader of all time. Maryland's at least top five, for sure. Friends, man, what a, what a weighty word before us in Revelation chapter 1, verse 4 through 8. What a wonderful passage of scripture. I don't know if this is what you think about when you come to the book of Revelation, this passage and these things. Uh, But it's, uh, I think we'll see this morning how central it is. Um, Are you one of those people who likes to make plans? You one of those people, or are you married to one of those people? Could you point to one of those people in this room, people who like to make plans? I'm pretty sure over so many years of marriage, I finally learned every week Let me rephrase that. I'm still learning. Every week on our day off, there is an unspoken, not on our iCloud calendar appointment, to plan the day off. What are we going to do today? I don't know. I think I'll just do these things. Well, what's the plan? What's the plan? Maybe you're one of those people. I think when we come to the book of Revelation that often the passages that we're studying can easily be overlooked because we are excited to go find the plans, go find the things that God's going to do. I want to know what God's going to do next. I want to know what's going to happen, and I want to know, more importantly, when it's going to happen. But I think if we'll slow down and look at this passage today, we are going to see what are the plans of God in the book of Revelation and at all time. We don't have to wait till we get to discuss the millennium, 20-some chapters later. The plans of God begin here for us in this passage. I want to ask you to pray with me before we get into God's Word together. Father, would you be with us today by your grace, by your mercy, in your spirit, in your word? Would you work in our hearts and our minds? Father, if we are low in affection for you today, if we are discouraged about knowledge of your plans today, if we are foggy in our thinking about you personally, Would you do a work through this word to clarify, to encourage, to instruct, that we might glorify you, live in obeying you, enjoying you this week. We love you, Father. We pray this together in Christ's name. Amen. Well, today's sermon really has two directions. First, God to us and then us to Christ. God to us, and us to Christ. We're going to spend the first part of our time this morning speaking about God to us, and the second half or so about us to Christ. Very early in the book of Revelation, John tells us here in this passage that this is to the seven churches in Asia. We're going to be discussing exactly what Paul means by that, and who that is, who those churches are in the weeks to come as we get closer to those seven letters in the next chapters. But notice today that the greeting to the recipients of the letter is Trinitarian. It comes from the Father, the Son and the Spirit. Look in Revelation chapter 1, verse 4, which Marilyn read for us. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you, so there's our direction first, grace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come. That's one person. That's one. The one who was and is and is to come is one Revelation 1.8 says the exact same thing. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. One of the first things John is doing to the recipients of the letter is explaining God in a strictly only God description so that we know who is talking to us and who is greeting us through the revelation to John, the one who is, who was, and who is to come. In Roman life, there were gods for everything, gods of thunder and lightning, god of archery and healing, god of agriculture, god of animals, god of the seasons. Roman homes would have shrines established in them for all of the gods or their favorites. Remember what we said about Domitian last week, perhaps, the Roman emperor at the time that Revelation was seen and written? He demanded that everyone called him Dominus et Deus, Lord and God. And John is writing first out the gate to people in that world in context, there's one God He's the God who was, he's the God who is, he's the God who is to come. He is eternal, he exists in power without compare, he exists through all time without compare. This phrase we have for the Lord is the Lord God Almighty. We see it at the end in chapter 1 verse 8. This is expressing that all power belongs to this one singular God. In the New Testament, there is no place in which it is said of man that he either has or can gain this word for almightiness. Man can't have this or do this. The phrase at the end of verse 8 is a reference to God and to God alone. The Lord God, the Almighty. A specific phrase which John uses, do you want to guess how many times in the book of Revelation? Anybody? Someone someone holding up seven. Seven references with this specific phrase. And it's a little unhelpful because the way it is translated to English in this translation and most, it pulls it apart But through Revelation, it's one phrase, so that your your verse in the ESV or others might say, the Lord God said, yada, yada, the Almighty at the end, but the phrase is actually the Lord God Almighty one word, and it's that way seven times in the book of Revelation. Revelation. It's this phrase used a couple chapters later in chapter 4, verse 8, when those strange living creatures with six wings full of eyes all around, they never cease day and night to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God almighty. That same phrase, who was, they say, and is, and is to come. This is singling out God From every other part of creation, from all other ideas of God's, from man and everything as the one who is eternal, who was and is and is to come, and his might has no limit. And it's this God who is offering a greeting. The greeting to the recipients of this letter comes from this God And it comes from the Spirit. The greeting of grace and peace come from the Spirit as part of this Trinitarian greeting. Look in chapter 1, verse 4. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was, who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Do you know there are seven spirits before the throne of God? Who are these seven spirits? You can write this down, look later, but in chapter 4, verse 5, and in chapter 5, verse 6, we see those seven spirits referenced again. Seven spirits before the throne of God. And then we see in chapter 5, verse 6, there's this picture of a, a lamb slain. He's got seven eyes seven horns, but we are told that these are the spirits of God in both of those chapters, chapter 4 being a vision of God, chapter uh, 5 being primarily looking at Christ. We are told that these seven spirits are the spirits of God. Why does it talk about seven spirits of God around the throne and with Christ? Isn't there only one spirit of God We'll add to this who is speaking the message to the seven churches in the coming chapters. At the end of every letter to one of the churches in 2.7, 2.11, 2.17, 2.29, and for the next for chapter 3, at the end of every letter, we hear this phrase, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit, singular, says to the churches. It says that seven times to the seven churches from the one Spirit. Those messages are from the Spirit to the churches. Here's what I want to help us understand as we go through the book of Revelation. This is how Revelation talks. This is the language of Revelation. Symbols mean things like words mean things. The only way to get used to it is to read it and to familiarize yourself with it and ask the Lord to show you Along the way, I'm not really good at Spanish in general, personally. In fact, I'm not very good at English in general, personally. The only way I passed Spanish in my senior year of high school was because I sat next to Yanita Fajardo. And she became one of my very good friends that year. I joke with Pastor Hugo, who we prayed for this morning, when we go down to Mexico, I feel like I, and I'm not, I'm not gonna say it's like a, gift of the Lord, but when we get down there, I feel like I could understand Spanish in a way that I can't understand it here. I just, I just pick up more words. If they're making plans about the day, I can kind of pick up that we might go to the market or get some food or that someone has to go to the bathroom. I, I know, I know baño, right? But as soon as we come back to Texas, anything I had is just gone. I just, just lose it, right? Now one's a joke because I really don't understand much Spanish at all. But here, here's, how, here's how this works. Revelation has kind of a language of its own. Symbols, numbers. Seven is really John's favorite number to use, it seems. It's the things that he sees most often. The number of things he sees most often is seven. It means something. It, it's communi- the, the number itself is communicating something, and, and so I, I think often we, we have spent so much of our times in the rest of the Bible, Texas, that we're unfamiliar. We don't, we don't even hear and pick up things when we go down into Mexico, which is Revelation, this new foreign kind of language. Revelation has its own language of symbols and meaning. So when it says seven spirits, we gotta look and figure out what, what does that mean? Does it mean there are seven or does it mean something more particular? Is it a symbol? We don't get to make up the meaning. We let John and the rest of the Bible help us understand. But I think as we read through Revelation, all of a sudden our symbols will begin to make clearer and clearer sense to us. We get to conclusions like this, for example the seven spirits of God are before the throne, and they're sending grace and peace to the church. We see in chapter 1, there are seven torches around the throne, and they are each the spirits, the seven spirits of God. On the lamb, there's the seven horns and seven eyes and the slain lamb, and these are the seven spirits of God sent to all the earth. Then the seven churches are given seven specific messages, each from the spirit singular. Seven seems to be a number associated with God's perfect work and person himself, what do the seven spirits seem to describe, seems to describe the entirety of the perfect global ministry of the Holy Spirit. The entirety of the perfect global ministry of the Holy Spirit. These spirits of God seem to be apocalyptic language for the ministry of God's Spirit, singular. And this is how God's spirit is to be understood as affecting everything in the room at the throne, as illuminating everything God does, even the ministry of the slain lamb. The seven spirits of God seem to be in everything that God's doing, bringing everything God is doing together into fruition. It's like at the salvation, at the end of 2 Corinthians 13, 14, we see this This conclusion at that book, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Spirit be with you all. We see the Spirit bringing in fellowship everyone and everything that God is doing. And the letter tells us that the Spirit of God, the seven spirits before God, are offering a greeting. The Lord God, the Almighty, the seven spirits, and Jesus Christ. What does the passage say about Jesus Christ? Revelation chapter 1, verse 5. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings on earth. The word faithful witness to speak about Christ means reliable martyr. The word for witness is martyrs. Jesus is the enduring, dependable, faithful witness of God all the way to his death. Jesus is spoken of as the firstborn of the dead. Jesus Christ was the first one to raise to eternal life from the dead. He died and rose forever, never to die again. Jesus is not like Lazarus and Tabitha whom he raised in the New Testament. He is the firstborn resurrected forever Romans chapter 6, verse 9, Paul says it this way, We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. And the fact that Jesus is called the firstborn implies that Jesus is not what? He's not the lastborn from the dead. It was a resurrection forever, not raising for a moment, that Jesus promised to his friend, Lazarus and his sister Martha. For Jesus said in John chapter 11, verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. So that Jesus would become, as Paul says, the firstborn of many brothers in Romans chapter 8. Do you know who is greeting you in this letter? the ruler of the kings of the earth. The faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, Jesus is the ruler of the kings of the earth. This is a really specific title, the ruler of the kings on earth. This is a comparison of Jesus to all other rulers on the earth. The phrase earth here literally means the whole surface of the earth. There's not a spot in the world, not a corner in some king's land, not a grain of sand on the beach where Jesus does not rule. And kings and presidents and emperors have for centuries and millennia competed for rule and reign in the world. I wonder if you might recognize this. Few sentences from a book written in 1957. See if you recognize who this might be from. To destroy the rule of imperialism, feudalism, and bureaucrat capitalism in China, it took the Chinese people more than a hundred years and cast them, cost them tens of millions of lives before victory in 1941. Look! Were those not living tigers, iron tigers, real tigers? But in the end, they changed into paper tigers, dead tigers, bean curd tigers. These are historical facts. Have people not seen or heard about these facts? There have indeed been thousands and ten thousands of them paper tigers, Thousands and ten thousands. Hence, imperialism and all reactionaries looked at, in essence, from a long-term point of view, from a strategic point of view, they must be seen for what they are, paper tigers. The Little Red Book by Mao Zedong, 1957. Few years after the Chinese revolutionary revolution began, 1949. Of course, you know, if you know a little history about China, that Mao Zedong left himself out of the paper tiger category. All the rulers in the world, they've got teeth. They've got the stripes. They've got the paws, but it turns out they're just made out of paper. Do you know where Mao Tse Tung is today? He's in the mausoleum in Beijing, China, embalmed, dead, encased. Because the only one to whom everyone else is truly a paper tiger is the ruler of the kings of the earth, Jesus Christ, who raised from the dead. Do you know who's talking to you here? The ruler of the kings of the earth. You have been afraid of any kings lately? Been afraid of what someone do might do with their missile silo or what someone's doing with your economy? Jesus is the ruler of the kings on the earth. All kings, our kings, Mao, Biden, Trump, Hitler, Reagan, Washington, Henry VII, Prince Charles, all of them, the ruler of the kings of the earth, has a greeting. This is part of his greeting, partly his greeting. The eternal, almighty God, the whole, ministering, global, perfect spirit, the faithful, firstborn king, are offering a greeting What's the greeting? Look back at chapter 1, verse 4. John to the seven churches that are in Asia. Here's what God, the Father, the Spirit, and the Son say. Grace and peace to you. The God of heaven who, is, who was and is and is to come and His Spirit and the Son who raised from the dead and rules over everything, comes with the greeting of grace and peace. That's good news. That's just very good news. There's plenty of rulers on the world today who have no good news for us, even the best-sounding, best-campaigning ones don't have good news like this high authority has for us, you ever travel to a foreign country and receive hospitality? I encourage you to travel for missions or otherwise if you're able. It, it's something different to have grown up in one place your entire life and go to a foreign country where, especially when you come from America, for example, where we live in great comfort and protection of our military, of our laws. We have so much freedom. And then you kind of, you pop over into Laos, or you pop over into China. You know, it's difficult to describe how good it is to find a friend when you're far from home. Someone to bring you in, welcome you, and say the world around you may be scary and cause harm and threaten you and take your comfort from you you may be far from home but i will greet you and bring you in and welcome you you can take a nap on my couch i'm going to feed you let this be as close to home as you can be and i think this is somewhat what the lord is doing in this greeting to the church to the seven churches here, here we are in Rome. Here we are cast out in this world waiting for the day until we are finally, finally, finally home. And the Lord is sending us a greeting of peace and grace. But be careful because the passage says, this is to the seven churches, and look at how verse 5 continues halfway through the next paragraph, to him who loves us. This is not a greeting to the entire world the same way to every person. This is to us. Who's us? Who are the recipients of grace? To him who loved us, middle of verse 5, and has freed us from our sins by his blood. The only way that this greeting is true for you, that this is God's grace to you, and God almighty in all eternity in his spirit and his son mean peace to you is that if you have put your faith in jesus christ as the son of god crucified on the cross to free us from our sins by forgiving us our sins recognizing that the death that we deserve that the debt that we owe god our our lives the sin that we've committed we trust that god paid for that by spilling jesus's blood on the cross that when we put our faith in him, he forgives our sin. This is the only way that God can say grace and peace to us. Otherwise, God would only be good and righteous and holy to say justice and wrath for you. The only way we avoid justice and wrath is by the blood of Jesus Christ who freed us from our sin, for which we deserve justice. God's wrath. Friends, I would encourage you to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ today if you've not done this already, if you've not considered this. And if you need to, just renew your faith in Jesus Christ today as the means to God giving us grace and peace. We do not have grace and peace with God because of our righteousness. We don't have grace and peace with God because we first are good for God but because God brings grace and peace to us by Jesus' blood. That is God to us. See how the text begins to change direction from us to God. John is now placing Jesus in this next couple of passages in the Old Testament to show that God's plan... Progresses from the Old Testament into eternity toward the glorification of Jesus Christ. Now, John doesn't seem in these two verses I'm referencing, 6 and 7, to quote any verses. You don't see any verses in quotation in verse 6 and 7. However, I think we're going to see that these words that John uses come from extremely pivotal moments in the Old Testament. So what I want us to do this morning is look at a few Old Testament passages, try to understand them a a little bit, and see if we can't see John might be using those to show us that God's ultimate plan is to give grace and peace to us through Jesus Christ, for the glorification of Jesus Christ forever. So we're gonna look really quickly at Exodus, at Daniel, and Zechariah. Go in your Bibles to the book of Exodus first. Exodus chapter 19, verse six, which is on page 60 in your house Bible. It's the second book of the Bible from the front, Genesis and Exodus. And as we get started, I was I was talking this week with a buddy a couple of times about this passage and basically saying, listen, I just think he's just, there's so much of the Bible that he's anchoring to from here. And uh, my friend said, you got to be careful because if, if you just get down so far in the weeds when you're preaching, you're just going to sound like an Area 51 truther. Right? You're just going to sound like a conspiracy theorist. You've got all your strings to all these passages. So I'm, that's in my mind. I'm going to try to keep us clear and simple. So we're going to look at three passages only in the Old Testament, two in the New Testament, and see if we can't see how John has the glorification of Jesus Christ as the foremost plane of God. Look with me in the book of Exodus. This is chapters Immediately after God saved Israel from 400 years of slavery to Egypt, 400 years of oppression, his covenant children, Abraham's children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, Exodus 19, 4-6, they just come out, they cross the Red Sea, Exodus 19, 4-6, God speaking, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, And how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my commandments, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for the earth is mine. Verse 6. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation." These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. God was speaking to Moses. Now we got to stop for a second. A kingdom of priests. I thought there was just one family of priests. I thought it was just Aaron and Levi and those guys who were priests and all of their sons. But it seems here that in some sense, God has just said the whole people of Israel were priests. What does that mean? It means that as priests within Israel go in and out before God on behalf of Israel, so Israel as a whole is God's priest in the whole world among all the nations. Among all the nations, who's the nation who goes into the presence of God, who has the presence of God who is the, the nation that, that has the sacrifices of God for sin? Who, who is the nation that has and receives the word of God? It's Israel. Israel, you are, to me, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation set apart. To keep that in your brain, just keep that in your brain. I'm trying to keep this from sound Area 51, so we're just making notes around, okay? Exodus 19, hold that. Go now in your Bibles to Daniel. Daniel chapter 7. There's no way this morning, for the sake of this text, we can give the totality of context for Daniel. It's a tough book, it's good, it's rich. But we just went forward about a thousand years in history. Israel at this point in Daniel chapter seven have already gone from Moses to judges to failed king after king. And now in Daniel's time, many generations after Moses, because they have disobeyed God, because they did not do what God said, which was keep his word in order to be his treasured covenant, God has now sent them into exile in Babylon. And Daniel in exile in Babylon is having visions of kings and kingdoms, specific kings and kingdoms. But then in chapter seven, he has this second of a couplet vision. Chapter seven, verse 13, 14, page 745, if you're in your house Bibles. Listen to what Daniel sees one late night. I saw in the night visions, Daniel 7, 13, 14. Now, there's a phrase in chapter 7, verse 13 that's important. While Daniel is seeing visions of kings and kingdoms, specifically Greece, Persia, and forwardly Rome, he sees coming before the throne of God in heaven, he sees a vision of one coming with the clouds. Don't forget that. He sees one who came like a son of man, He came to the ancient of days, that's God, with the clouds. So we've got Exodus, we've got Daniel, go to the book of Zechariah. A kingdom of priests from the Exodus, this one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds in Daniel Go to the book of Zechariah, page 799. I looked this up because I can never find the smaller prophets. It's two books from the left from Matthew. You have Matthew, Malachi to the left, and then Zechariah. This book is written about 20 years after the exile has ended, and they're about 20 years into rebuilding the temple that the Babylonians had destroyed in 586 B.C., And at first, when they came back from the exile, they're really excited. We're building the temple, we're free. Never mind the fact that we're being taxed to death, but we're free, we're gonna build the temple again. 20 years in, it's just not going so hot. The temple is slow in being built. There's opposition from outside. And Zechariah has this word of encouragement Visions of encouragement, you could say. Look at Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10 through 14. Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10 through 14. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, you guys over there trying to rebuild this temple, a spirit of grace. And please for mercy. That's what you will do. So that when they look on me, it's interesting, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him. As one mourns for an only child, and weep bitterly over him, as one weeps over a firstborn. Now, what's this mean for? You can keep reading the next few verses and see how he's naming some specific tribes and families. Of Israel, Israelites will mourn on the one whom they have pierced. Now, what's this mean? It's a bit strange to us, but it seems like the people of the house of David, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, are going to realize that they've pierced someone who's their own son, their own child, one whom they have pierced themselves. They're going to mourn like an only child, as if they lost everything. They're going to realize that they pierced their own. And who is that? Look back at the passage in Zechariah chapter 12. When they look on me, but God is speaking here. When they look on me, on him whom they have pierced. Well, who is giving this prophecy God? Or is it someone else? Okay, so we're going to try to put these together. What's going on? John... If you're using these things, where is all this going? Exodus, Daniel, Zechariah. If John's using all these, he just spanned about a 1,500-year period of history and prophecy. What's going on? Look in your Bibles, Mark chapter 14. Let's go to our two New Testament passages. Mark 14, 60 to 64. we got a lot of Scripture reading this morning. We're just letting... What we're trying to do here is let the Bible tell its own story. What I'm trying to do is get out of the way. I hope I am doing that and not making it worse. Mark 14, 60 to 64, I think you're going to see some familiar words. This is the moment when Jesus is in trial with the chief priests. Before he goes to be crucified, his own people... The priests who should be caring for him, should be overseeing, should worship him as Messiah, they've got him on trial. And, and look what we find, Matthew or Mark chapter 14, verse 60 through 40. The high priest stood up, and it's, this, there's some irony here because they're supposed to be a kingdom of priests. The high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify about you, against you? But he, Jesus, remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the blessed? Are you the Son of God? And Jesus said, get ready, I am and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witness do we need? You have heard his blasphemy, who he claims to be. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. Don't miss it. When they said, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed?, who, what did Jesus say? He said, yes, let me quote Daniel 7.13 for you. That's who I am. Coming with the clouds like one son of man. Turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 19, verse 34 to 37. Two books to the right from Here. Mark John 19:34 to 37 <laughs> Trial didn't go well for Jesus. They condemned him to death. They sent him to the Romans to be crucified. John 19:34 to 37. Listen to what John says, same author of our book Revelation. One of the Roman soldiers, Jesus is now on the cross. His hands are pierced, his feet are pierced. Crown of thorns on his head. One of the Roman soldiers pierced his side with a spear. Pierced his side with a spear. And at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true. And he knows that he's telling the truth. That you also may believe that this is what happened. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. None of his bones will be broken. I think that's Psalm 22. Verse 37 and again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. Sound familiar? This is Zechariah. Turns out, the kingdom of priests from Exodus 19 sent the Son of Man coming with the clouds from Daniel 7 to be pierced just like Zechariah 12 said they would. When Jesus died on the cross... Those passages were being fulfilled. That Jesus is what they were speaking about all along. Now see if we can't wrap this together quickly with Revelation chapter 1 verse 5 through 7. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom priest to his God and Father. Now, who is freed here? Who who is freed here? It's not Egypt from Exodus. It's those who are trusting Christ are freed from their sins. And not by the blood of the lamb over the doorpost, but by the blood of Jesus on the cross. And now, who are the kingdom of priests? Not only Israel, but us, all who are freed from their sins by Jesus' blood, are have been made into a kingdom of priests. That is, Christians have God's word, the gospel of God's forgiveness of sin. We bring people to God and God to people. We're like priests. but we're a whole people who do that together on Earth, among everyone else in the earth. He made us a kingdom priest to God, to his God and Father. Continue reading. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Behold, he is coming with the clouds. That's John now. Behold, he's coming with the clouds. Daniel 7 saw this past tense, but looking forward, he saw him came with the clouds, In Mark chapter 14, Jesus says, You will see me coming with the clouds. And in Revelation chapter 1, what does John say? Behold, he is coming with the clouds. That is not to say merely that he will one day come, but this is present tense. He is presently coming. So John is saying that what Daniel saw, what Jesus said of himself would happen, is now happening and will culminate in the end of the age. Jesus is coming with the clouds now, and every eye will see him even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. Do you see the change here? It's not just the tribes of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem who will mourn. Not only those who have pierced him, it's the tribes of all the earth. All tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. I think this is a weird, strange way of saying, to be true with what Zechariah is saying, that God's going to pour out on his his spirit on all nations so that all nations will realize that Jesus has been crucified for their sins and they will wail and weep realizing that he is the son of God crucified for sin. God's plan for Exodus, Daniel, Zechariah and to the cross through Mark and through John and through what we're seeing here is the whole Bible is that the whole plan of God is to bring grace and peace to those who would trust in Christ by dying on the cross and coming again and to bring about the glorification of Jesus. All the plans that God has from Abraham to Exodus to Daniel to Zechariah to Jesus that come right to Jesus. Look with me in your Bibles, Ephesians chapter one, verse seven through 10, our last passage this morning to try to add clarity to what is the plan of God and how the Bible thinks of it. Ephesians 1, 7 through 9, 7 through 10. Paul, writing to the church in Ephesus, one of the seven in Revelation. In Jesus, we have redemption through his blood. That's how we get redeemed back to God, by the blood of Jesus. That is the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us, in all wisdom and insight, making known to us, when God sent Jesus to die on the cross and shed his blood, what was he doing? Lavishing upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will. What he's doing, what's God's plan? According to the purpose which he set forth in Christ. So his purpose is in Christ Christ. As a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. God's plan is to send Christ for the forgiveness of sins that he might offer grace and peace to all who trust in Christ And for Christ to be glorified and to begin dominion over the earth forever and ever. And this is God's plan. The one who was, who is, who is to come. This is his plan for the fullness of time. This is it. This is the plan for the whole time. We don't get to totally unpack it this a.m., These verses in John today are from the Old Testament to show us through the book of Revelation going forward as well. The wrath of God, which is going to be poured out in chapters 6 through 10, has in its memory the judgment on the Exodus. Like Daniel, who do we see as the great enemy in the second half of the book, 14 through 18, but Babylon. What is built and finally forever established in Revelation 21, that they struggled to build in Zechariah's time. Revelation 21:3, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man; he will be with his people, and God Himself will be with them as their God. That's temple language. In John 1:4 through 8, he's showing us that all the Bible backward, and everything that he's going to do forward grace and peace to you in the glorification of Jesus Christ on the earth forever and ever to him be glory and dominion forever and ever grace to us glory to Christ forever let's pray Father, thank you for your grace in Jesus Christ which you offer us solely through the blood of Jesus. We do not deserve to be with you. We do not deserve your love toward us, but you are loving and gracious, and you are eternal, and you are all-powerful. So your plan cannot be stopped. We thank you for Jesus who rose from the dead. May we live this week as people who have seen the heart of the plan. May we love you more, enjoy glorifying Christ this week, that whatever may come, whatever trial, whatever trouble, we would know you offer us grace and we will rest in glorifying Jesus Christ. We love you, Father. We pray this together in Christ's name. Amen.